10, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32. And it starts out thus. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And that is God's precious uh, word for us today, for us to uh, consider. I wonder what you consider is the greatest injustice this world has ever seen. If I went out into the streets, if we went out and asked that question, what would be the response to that? The greatest injustice this world has ever seen. Undoubtedly many people would refer, I think, to, to the slave trade of years ago, uh, when people were taken from their homes uh, in Africa and transported to other lands against their will, the slave trade. Others might look and, and think about the, the Holocaust in World War II. Millions of Jewish people slaughtered in those times just because of religion. Great injustices in this world and due to the evil in this world due to the sin in this world the, the list could go on and on and on and, and we here haven't probably experienced those things or we haven't experienced those things but many of us might have experienced uh, personal injustice or felt we have experienced personal injustice against us wrong punishment, false accusations insults and the rest against us Today, we are going to consider what I would propose to you is the greatest injustice this world has ever seen. Because it truly was an innocent man. A truly innocent man. 
I remember when I was at school once, uh, being called out in a classroom, uh, a scientific instrument had been vandalised, and the teacher said, Coxall, that was you, outside. And I got sent outside. And I can honestly say to this day, that was nothing to do with me. I didn't even know it had been vandalised. And uh, that, w- that was that. I had no idea anything. And I was truly innocent of that. <coughs> of course, there were many things I did at school where I wasn't caught and so I wasn't innocent of those. But this one, who we're considering today, was truly innocent of anything. The Bible says that in him was no sin. He did no sin, and he knew no sin. Under the examination of God, as we have seen in Matthew's Gospel, truly he was the beloved son who had done nothing wrong whatsoever. Instead of worshipping him, as they should have done, because as Matthew's Gospel reminds us at the start, this is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. What they did, what men did, is they derided him, to use the words out of my translation, they mocked him, they reviled him, basically insulted him, whilst he endured one of the cruelest methods of execution known to man. And he willingly suffered it. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly suffered the excruciating pain of crucifixion, the extreme mockery of men, and as we'll consider perhaps more fully next week in, in the will of God, the wrath of God upon him. Why? For the greatest and eternal good of sinners who will come to believe in him for forgiveness of sin and for eternal life. For those who have rebelled against him, those who have disregarded him, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and takes the punishment for sin from God, as we will consider, and endures the hostility of sinners against him. The one who should they should have knelt down and worshipped is the one who endured these things as we will think of today. See, the cross was necessary. The cross, as we'll consider, was always in the plan of God. Mankind, these men here, uh, the Roman authorities, the Jewish religious leaders, thought they were doing uh, their worst to, to get rid of him. But the cross was always in the mind of God. You remember again, Matthew says at the start of his gospel... Matthew says in in what we call chapter 1 verse 21 the message was given uh, to Joseph uh, about Mary she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins he will save his people there's no realm of possibility he might But he will save his people from their sins. And as we'll consider uh, again today, be reminded again through the word of God, that his death on the cross was absolutely essential. If he was going to save sinners, then there had to be a death for the sin of sinners. And he on the cross would secure salvation for all who would come to believe in him. And so, the greatest injustice of this world, this great evil, the cross, was actually planned by God for the eternal good of all who place their faith 
and can place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're familiar, I think many of you would be familiar with the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament story? And if you haven't read it in the Bible, then you might be familiar uh, of it in theatre productions and film productions. And basically the story goes like this. Of course, Joseph was a much-loved son of his father. And uh, he is sent uh, to his brothers on a mission. He's sent to his brethren. And he's hated by them. His brothers hate him. And they discard him. They want to murder him. They sell him. In their f- He's going to be put out of their sight. You might remember that. And ultimately, to cut the long story short, when his brothers are in great need, they come to him and Joseph is revealed to them. And he doesn't punish them. He forgives them and saves them from starvation. You might remember that, the story of Joseph. And at the end, Joseph gives this verdict on this. And he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And if I was to write a summary sentence across this passage which we have today, which would help us remember what is the big lesson that we learn from this passage, it would be that sentence. Mankind, you, Romans, as we'll think about, the general public, the religious, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. For your eternal good. Amazing grace. Amazing love. There are really, as we look at our passage today, as we think about that, it's all to to do with people mocking, deriding uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see firstly of all it is the Romans who crucify him. It is the general public who come and revile him. And then it is the religious religious leaders who mock him. We're going to think about that in those three little sections for us today. And next week in the will of God more fully, um, perhaps more comprehensively, it will be considered uh, how God saw it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer comes clear. Well, we're going to touch on that today as well, as you might anticipate as well. The Romans crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. John tells us in his gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ carries his own cross. Probably uh, the cross beam. Uh, Probably I would think that the the virtual bit was kept in the ground and the Lord Jesus Christ carries his cross beam. Uh, You might think otherwise. That's okay. It doesn't matter if you think otherwise. But what we see, Simon, a man called Simon, is forced to carry that to a place called Golgotha, a place which was on the outskirts of Jerusalem and there the Lord Jesus Christ would be taken out. He would be seen as an outcast, he would be crucified outside the camp and they gave him, as we've read together there, some wine to drink uh, mixed with gall. He himself does not take it. He himself is not going to take anything that is going to alleviate the sensation of what he is about to suffer. Okay, he's not going to take anything. And this wine, uh, Moose would say that the idea of this was to sort of, uh, actually, some people think it's really to, to, so there wouldn't be the great struggle when the nails go through his arms or his wrists and his ankles. Some sort of anaesthetic. But regardless, the Lord did not take that at all. And really, prophecy is fulfilled in that. 
It is very interesting as we go through this passage today, we will be reminded time and time again that the things that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered there upon the cross and leading up to his crucifixion were prophesied. They're in the mind of God. And Psalm 69 says that for my verse they gave me sour wine to drink. But he did not. But then in very plain language, without any dramatics or much description at all, we read in verse 35, there they crucified him. One of the Roman historians called Tacticus said that crucifixion was a torture only fit for slaves. It is a cruel method of execution not invented by the Romans but adapted by them and if you might popularised by them and it was, a, it was a kept for rebels, runaway slaves and the lowest type of criminal to execute them. It was a punishment which it was illegal to inflict on a Roman citizen, so hence the Apostle Paul wasn't crucified. You couldn't do it to a Roman citizen, the lowest ones were treated like this. A humiliation in public. Nails driven through probably the wrists and the ankles of someone which would be excruciatingly painful. Cries of agony would come out from anyone who experienced that, of course, had to. And then lay and kept on a cross to die. The pain was awful. And most people would be there two or three days. And the Romans crucified hundreds of thousands like that. But in history, we just remember one. Matthew doesn't go into any details less than I have now said about crucifixion. But what we remember, what is important is this, it was always going to be this death. It was always going to be this type of death for Jesus Christ. It was planned by God, the Bible tells us, before the very foundation of this world. Before this world was created, in the mind of God that it was this, that he would send his son into this world... And his son would take the punishment for sin. Not his own, but the sin of all who would come to trust in him. So that they, through faith and trust in him, could be forgiven for their sin. And it was always in his mind. Before the days even of creation. And as we go through the gospel accounts, we, we, under, we see that the religious leaders tried to kill him before this. You might remember at the start of his ministry, stands in his own hometown and Luke 4 says they took him out and they sought to throw him off a cliff. John 8, 59, you, you might remember this, in John 8 there the Lord Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Making himself, he is saying he's God. Taking the name of God upon his lips and what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. And again in John 10, he re is recorded, he says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews, again, John says, picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus Christ was never going to be thrown off a cliff to die. He was never going to be stoned to death, as is the Jewish method of execution, because it was prophesied, it was predicted that he would be placed upon a cross 
Listen to Psalm 22, just a little part of Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. And Think to yourself, as you were reading this, uh, verses that were recorded 1,000 years before the events we have read today in Matthew's Gospel. And who are they speaking about? Let me read. Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet... I count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Those words written 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's very clear to me, and I hope you agree as well, that that truly is prophecy, accurate, clear specifics about how the saviour of this world would come to die. Isaiah, some 700 years before this, also speaks of crucifixion, because he says, Isaiah 53 verse 5, or he writes, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. So we see quite clearly that this was in the mind of God, that Jesus Christ, his beloved son, would always be crucified. But we read something else that the Romans did as well. They put a charge above his head saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It was really mockery by Pilate. Pilate was mocking the authority that Jesus claimed for himself. And there it was, this one who is crucified, this one who is hanging on a cross there, the king of the Jews. It's a mockery against the authority of Jesus Christ. And we read elsewhere, we can bring the gospel accounts together. It was in three languages, Hebrew, Greek and Latin. So everyone could understand what was being declared. The rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it was, that notice on the cross. But friends, there's one thing I want to say to you today. In the mind of God, there was something else there. In the mind of God, there was something else nailed to the cross as well. And it's great significance. Let me remind you, or inform you. Paul, the apostle, wrote to Christians in Colossae. And God, he says, had forgiven them all their sin. How? How, how, what was Paul going to say? How had God forgiven them all their sin? Well, this is what he writes in Colossians 2.14. He had done it by this. God had done this. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay, so there's a record of debt that stands against us. There's a record of debt that is against you, your individual debt, because of your sin, that is against God, and you're in debt. And it's a debt you cannot pay. But Paul goes on. This record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, don't go away thinking there were lots of pieces of wood nailed to the cross. This is obviously uh, you know, symbolic of what's in God's mind. But what was in God's mind, and what is in God's mind, that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, the debt 
that we had against him was nailed in that public place on the cross. It goes back to the old, an old practice of nailing the written evidence of a cancelled debt in a public place. So years ago, if you'd have been, um, if you were in debt to someone, and people would know about it, you would be in debt against them. What would happen once you paid that debt? fully and completely, there would be a notice displayed in a very public place. So all would know that you were no longer in debt. And so that's what Paul is drawing from. And he says, all who have trusted in Jesus Christ can know that their sins were placed to his account. The certificate of debt... The certificate of debt was nailed to his cross. He paid a debt. He did not owe. I owed a debt. I could not pay. And all of us as individuals, all of us as individuals, every single person in this room and every single person in this world has a debt due to their sin that is against God. And all who trust in Jesus Christ can know this, that the record of debt was nailed to the cross. It has been paid in full. God is fully satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So the Romans crucify and the Romans charge. But the scene moves on. Matthew takes us on in this scene. And as we move on, say to verse 38, we see two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And at the end of our passage for today, we notice that those who were crucified with him reviled him. They mocked him. And there's more detail in other gospel accounts concerning that. But Matthew doesn't bring us before that, and we're not going to do that today. But what is interesting is this. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ, the truly innocent one, crucified between two robbers. What does Isaiah say? 700 years before the death of Jesus Christ upon a cross. Isaiah writes, just uh, for uh, many of you know, but some wouldn't know, and that's fine, we all need a reminder, that Isaiah speaks about a coming servant. One who would come and bring salvation for his people. That's the theme of Isaiah. Okay, In that passage we're thinking about, in Isaiah 53, what does it say? He was numbered with the transgressors. So the one who would come, Isaiah say, would be numbered with the transgressors. And when the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified between two robbers, that's the fulfilment of that prophecy. Isaiah, of course, goes on. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there is that. And we see they revile him. And here's the thing that comes along. So the, it seems as though the general public are there as well. And verse 39, they're deriding him, they're wagging their heads and saying these words. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. There's uh, two little things we've got to point on here I'd like to bring before you. This accusation, this taunt, this mockery, this derision aimed at the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would destroy the temple, you said you would destroy the temple, 
and rebuild it. Well, save yourself. Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ never, ever said he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem. He never said he would do that. He did say, in fact, it would be destroyed, but he never said he would do it. But what they're referring to is this. Jesus Christ did say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Recorded right at the start of John's Gospel, John 2, 19. See, the temple was very special, as you could imagine, for the people. It was a temple where God's presence was. Where the very presence of God would be, and once a year, one person could go right into the very presence of God. Other than that, there was a veil there. And some could come close. But it symbolised the presence of God. And what is Jesus saying? He said, destroy this temple. He's not speaking about the building, he's speaking about himself. He's speaking about himself. In him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily. The very presence of God was amongst them. And he is saying, if you destroy this temple, my body, I will raise it up in three days. And that's exactly what happens, of course, as you know, and as we, in God's will, will discover in the coming weeks again. That though he dies upon a cross, though he is buried upon a cross, on the third day he rises from the dead. He, ra- he is raised from the dead. That was always the great plan. In Matthew, again, we, we read when, the Lord, when Peter makes a great confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus began to teach this. He must go. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so the public misquote the Lord Jesus Christ or misunderstand if we're being generous. He didn't say he would destroy that temple but if they destroyed him he would be raised up and that's exactly what happens. But the second thing I want to bring before you is this. About saving yourself. Save yourself. He could have done that. He could have saved himself. But he did not. He didn't save himself so that you and anyone who comes to him could be saved. That is the great sacrifice. That is the great selfless work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the one who truly could have saved himself, the one who could have took himself off that cross quite easily. We think the nails held him there. Well, in some sense, I suppose we are correct in some sense. But he could have come off that cross. That would not have been difficult. For the one who could raise from the dead, the one who speaks and all creation comes in. But he keeps upon the cross. He has got no intention of saving himself because his intent there is to secure salvation for all who had come to believe in him. Coming down from the cross was not an option. The Son of God in human flesh 
is not going to save himself. He's going to keep on the cross and secure salvation for all who will come to him. He was, as, as we might think, the obedient servant of God, always in the mind of God that his son would go to the cross. And the son goes willingly to the cross. And he was obedient to the point of death. He wasn't obedient to death. Death didn't have any mastery over him. He gave himself up to death. We can think about that. But he was obedient to the point of death, fully doing the will of God and bringing salvation, securing salvation for his people. Amazing. And so the public deride him, revile him with that accusation. But then we see this. It's not only just the Romans, it's not just the public, but in our last verses, in verse 41 onwards, we see the chief priests, the scribes and the elders come together. And they give similar mockery. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. We will believe in him. If he comes down. Really. Before them was the one who by his teaching and his miracles, which had been done so publicly and so clearly, had demonstrated himself to be the one who was the truly the coming king. He was truly God in human flesh. He had clearly demonstrated on numerous occasions, Matthew records some of them for us, the gospel record, the gospel accounts record some, but there was so much that Jesus Christ did before the people there to demonstrate who he was. The evidence was irrefutable. In any court of law, you know, it would just stand up, it would stack up that this is truly the Messiah, this is God before us. He had saved people from blindness, demonic possession, being unable to walk, being unable to speak, from hunger, and even, as Matthew records, from death itself. He had raised from the dead, all publicly and clearly. The proof was there of who he was. And he had actually given a preview of what kingdom life would be like in a future time. A preview of the king to come in his kingdom. And before them was the one whom scripture testified to as well. These men knew the scriptures. These men knew the scriptures. They could quote the scriptures better than you or I. They knew that Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 5, had written these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And as they gaze at that one on the cross suffering, as they gaze at him, This willful rejection because the proof is there in his life and in scripture of who that is and they say one more miracle and we will believe they will not they will not there is abundant proof given to them and they just demanded a sign they willfully rejected Jesus Jesus spoke about a generation that demands a sign he says, you've got the scriptures, they point towards me. Here's the record. 
Here is the record concerning myself, the scriptures. And friends, today we have that. We have the scriptures. Most of you have a copy in your hand right now. A very good translation of the scriptures. But testify to who Jesus Christ is. Who he was, what he did. Using it just as a basis of evidence that you'd bring before a court of law. The evidence is all there. And cannot be disputed. I'll suggest to you. No signs are required to understand. No further signs. I was reading just this week in Luke chapter 16. Can you, I don't know if you can remember Luke chapter 16. Once I maybe go into it a little bit, you will. It's, it's a parable that the Lord Jesus Christ told. I'd take as a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. You might remember it. And um, there was this rich man who had had all the luxury in life. And there was Lazarus who had been just outside his gates. And he was so sick and so ill that even the dogs came and licked his sores and both die. And what happens is the rich man ends up in hell. Not because he was rich, nothing like that, but because he didn't have faith in God. And Lazarus ends up in the place called Abraham's bosom. We could say heaven if you like. And the rich man um, makes a plea uh, for, for just a drop of water to be on his tongue. And he says, no, that's not going to happen. And he's told there's a great chasm which is fixed between them that you cannot go across. This is eternity. You cannot go across heaven and hell. In life you made the choice. And that is the consequence. And then he says, well, I've got a family Send someone from here to my brothers to tell them. They'll believe if someone rises from the dead. But, it is said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, what does that mean? It means the scriptures. Or if you like, the Bible. If they don't hear the Bible and what it says to them, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What was the evidence there? What was, it, what was being said? That the scriptures are enough. The scriptures are more than enough to bring conviction of sin. Test me of who Jesus Christ is and was and always will be. And test me of your need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a man in this parable, he was in hell. And he is told for his, those who were remaining on earth that they had the scriptures and that was enough. That was enough for them. That was what they were getting and that was plenty. And so today, where do we go from that? That's just a parable, I think, but it's a powerful parable. And so before us today, particularly as evidence of who Jesus Christ is, and the scriptures are enough. The final insult that Matthew brings before us is this. In our passage, they said, He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires. For he says, I am the Son of God. Let God deliver him, if he trusts in him. 
Well, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ was fully trusting in God. He was fully trusting in God. But God would not deliver him from this pain, this excruciating pain. And so it was excruciating. You know, the word excruciating was a word developed to describe a pain that came from crucifixion. Uh, in Latin, out of the cross, ex crucia, ex out of the cross. There was no real word to describe this extreme pain, excruciating, physical. And as we'll see next week, the spiritual pain when the Saviour is forsaken of God takes the punishment for sin in those three hours upon himself. His suffering means all who trust in him will never experience eternal suffering and punishment for sin. And so where do we conclude today? Well, maybe on these words again, out of the book of Genesis, that Joseph said so long ago, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. As we've read today, we've read the, uh, how the Romans... The public and the religious meant it for evil. But I trust we've seen, maybe been refreshed, that God meant this for your eternal good. What's left for us to do is to respond in that right way. Trust Jesus Christ as our Saviour. Confess that he is Lord and we will be saved. We will have eternal life. We will know the life of God within us. We will know the transforming work of Christ in our lives. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Father, we just give thanks uh, for your word. We think of how we've been on solemn and serious ground today. Uh, Father, which needs much reverence as we come to it, the crucifixion of thy beloved Son. Help us, Lord, to understand truly the things that are from your word. Help us to discard those things that are not. But, Father, may the things that are from your word remain in us and keep with us, and may we respond appropriately if we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.